0: Leading saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning.
1: Hello and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in, have a seat. As uh, always, I'd like to introduce the uh, gentleman to my right, my valet, Wilkinson. Uh, He assists with our show by uh, pulling all our uh, reference materials from the shelves and reading any uh, passages that will be uh, directly quoted. Pleased to meet you. Listeners by now will probably know that we open with a mailbag segment, but uh, for those who don't, you want to explain it, Wilkinson? Yes, Mr. Ridenauer will be answering your questions, one drawn at random each
0: episode. You can submit them via our website. The details are all there. Details including the rules for proper submissions. Yes, Mr. Reidenour has set out a few guidelines to make the process more successful for all involved.
1: Yes, so let's see what we have this time around. Mail. Bag. Okay, I'm reaching in the mailbag right now, and yes, I, I think this... this will be the one. Okay. Uh, you want to read it, Wilkinson?
0: Yes, sir. Dear Mr. Reidenhauer, I really enjoyed the Bluebeard Show. I didn't know a thing about the character before listening, and actually thought he
1: was probably a pirate. Like a cousin of Blackbeard's. Uh, Ha. New guideline. No more letters that use the word ha. He didn't actually use that word
0: since he sent an email. He used an emoji. No emojis. Well, yes, sir. But by way of explanation, it might be worth telling our listeners that these messages arrive as emails. And then I print them out as a hard copy because, well, otherwise there would be no, well, a mailbag with no mail,
1: I... Suppose It's more theatrical this way. Yes, sir. So, uh, this doesn't even seem like a question. More like he's looking for a reaction. Is there some certain way I'm supposed to feel about him being confused on the topic? Does he want me to uh, be a little sad? Because that's how I'm feeling... Maybe there's an emoji, so I'll know what feelings he finds appropriate. No, sir. There is
0: more to the letter. An actual question or request coming. Continue. But speaking of pirates, maybe that would be a good topic for a future show. I think it would be a big hit with my crew. Crew (sighs) is in capitals, and then there's... Well... What? It's actually another... Ha! Or well, that was my translation because this one I wasn't sure about because of the emoji used. It was confusing. Honestly, it might have been a slice of pizza.
1: I don't even know why we do these segments. Well. well Episode 30 Lugerou, Werewolves in France. <laughs> I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore in a uh, historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle uh, only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive a number of monthly rewards related to the uh, production of this show. And I'll have more on uh, Patreon at the uh, end of the episode. Now, some of you may have been wondering why only French werewolves. Perhaps your favorite werewolf comes from somewhere else. Um, All I can say is that there will be more werewolf shows to come. It's a big topic like vampires and worthy of multiple shows. In the last episode, I promised to discuss a historical figure that uh, might have inspired Charles Perrault's uh, Bluebeard. That uh, figure is Count Connemore, or Connemore the Accursed, a 6th century ruler of Brittany in the far northwest of France. And his story happens to end with a bit of a coda bridging our way to our main discussion of werewolves. Count Connemore, the legends say, was cursed from childhood with an evil nature. Even as a child, his mother would ring a bell in the castle tower to alert the populace when he went beyond the walls. He was said to have uh, tested a firearm on an innocent farmhand and sent his hunting dogs against the poor for sport. Worst of all, he was said to have murdered his wives, four of them, one after another. When it came time for him to take another wife, he seeks the hand of the... uh, beautiful and uh, saintly Traphine, daughter of uh, Count Warach, uh, Connemore's rival for control of Brittany. Because of uh, his reputation, this offer was uh, first refused, but when Connemore uh, threatens war against Warach, the holy man, Saint Gildas the Wise, encourages Traphine to accept the offer to avert great bloodshed, but not without offering Traphine a special form of protection. As the uh, legend is told in Elsie uh, Masson's uh, 1929 book, Folk Tales of Brittany," he assures the nervous bride,
0: "Fear nothing, Trophine. Here is a silver ring as white as silk. It will warn you if Kanor plots Philies against you, for it will then turn as black as a raven's wing.
1: The marriage takes place, and for a time, the count treats uh, his new bride with surprising kindness. Until one day, upon returning from a journey, he finds Trephine embroidering clothing for an infant.
0: When he beheld her work, he grew pale and asked, For what child are you making that? The princess who thought that it would bring him great happiness answered, In a short time count, a child will be born to us.
1: When Connemore storms off in a silent rage, Trephine glances down and notices that her little silver ring given her by the saint has turned black she runs in terror to her usual place of prayer, the crypt in which the uh, previous wives are entombed, and hides there for many hours.
0: Midnight struck. As the last note sounded, the countess saw four ghost-like figures slowly moving toward her. All but dead with terror, she tried to flee, but one of the wraiths addressed her in a sepulchral voice, Beware, beware, lost creature, Connemore is on the watch to kill you. To kill me, exclaimed the Countess. What have I done to make him wish me dead? He knows that you will soon be the mother of a child, and it has been foretold that his son will be the cause of his destruction.
1: The spirits tell her she must return to her father, but Trephine objects.
0: How can I escape, returned the Countess. The giant dog of Connemore guards the gate. Give to him this poison which killed me, said the first. Oh, how can I get down the high wall, asked the young wife. Let yourself down by this cord which strangled me, replied the second. But who will direct me through the darkness, asked the countess. This fire which consumed me, replied the third. Oh, how can I take so long a journey, once more asked Trophine. Make use of this staff which crushed my temples, said the last."
1: All of these elements serve the princess as suggested as she escapes Connemore's castle. But, during the journey, she gives birth to the child in a forest glade. As she's holding the newborn, she sees a falcon wearing a ring, marking him as one of her father's hunting birds. And, calling the bird over, she attaches the blackened ring from St. Joras, sending the falcon home with this token of distress, hoping... For rescue, but Connemore and his bloodhound are hot on her trail. Hearing their approach, she stashes the newborn in the hollow of a tree moments before Connemore enters the glade. When he saw
0: Trophine, he uttered a wild ah! cry and, drawing his cutlass, quickly struck off her head.
1: Meanwhile, as Connemore flees the bloody scene, the falcon's token has arrived. Her father, his men, and Saint Sheldas are led by the bird to the site of the bloody deed. Trophine's father collapses in grief, but Jalas declares,
0: The evil may yet be undone. So saying, he knelt with all there present, and after having uttered fervent prayer, he addressed the countess. Rise up, commanded he, and Trophine obeyed, and taking her head, she set it on her shoulders, and she was alive again.
1: They make their way back to Count Connemore's castle, and...
0: Uh, then lo... A miracle was seen, the child walked to the brink of the moat, and Stooping took a handful of sand and threw it against the castle walls. Immediately the towers of the castle fell over with noise of thunder, the walls split open, and in an instant all the mighty stronghold of Connemore toppled into ruin, burying the tyrant and all his wicked followers beneath the
1: stones. Some versions of the story don't have the uh, newborn taking this uh, action himself and have Jodas throwing the handful of sand instead, though that doesn't fulfill the prophecy as nicely. The final curse upon the accursed Connemore was that in death, he was barred entrance to either heaven or hell, fated instead to forever wander the forests of the region in the form of a ravening werewolf. So a word about the episode title, Lou Garou is the uh, French term for werewolf and is actually rather redundant as Lou is simply the word for wolf, while Garou on its own means werewolf, uh, though it's rarely used like that. Anyway, this uh, notion of Connemore becoming a werewolf as divine punishment was not unusual for the region. Into the 18th century, Bretons who had failed to make confession for 10 years were said to become werewolves. And elsewhere in northwestern France, excommunication could transform one into a werewolf, usually for a period of seven years. In Picardy, also in northern France, there's a legend of another count transformed into a werewolf after his death. It was told of Hugues de Comte who in 1131, during a battle, burned the town of Saint-Riquier, claiming the lives of 2,600 victims in a single day. For his crime in the afterlife, he would prowl the regions as...
0: A horrible phantom, black and loaded with chains, in the form of a wolf, howling
1: most piteously. The quote here is from an outstanding book. I'll be referencing a good deal in this show. The Werewolf in Lore and Legend, a 1933 book by Montague Summers, an erudite and highly eccentric scholar I talked a bit about in episode one. Probably the earliest French reference to werewolves is in a 12th century poem by Marie de France. The uh, title, Bis Clavray, is uh, both the name of its uh, protagonist and also an old uh, Breton word for werewolf. Bisclavre is a uh, baron, a favorite of the king, who has a habit of mysteriously disappearing every week for three days. His wife, finally unable to bear her curiosity any longer, begs him to account for his absences, and he finally reveals that during these days he roves about in the form of a wolf, a transmutation effected by removing his clothing, which he must safely stash away so that at the end of three days he can reclothe himself and return to human form. His wife does not take the news well, and after this will no longer lie beside him. She begins scheming with a knight who has long desired her and together they contrive a plan to steal Bisclavre's uh, clothing while he roams in wolf form so that he cannot return and they can then marry. The plan is successful and they are married and uh, that would have been the end of that but for an incident during the king's hunting trip during which his dogs corner this uh, very special wolf. This uh, Lupin Bisclavre runs to the king and licks his foot in supplication. The king, who you'll remember, was fond of the uh, human Bisclavre, takes uh, this remarkable wolf back to his castle as a pet. Then comes the day when the treacherous wife and knight she has married visit the king, and the wolf attacks the knight in a later scene the king's pet wolf similarly attacks his former wife this time tearing off her nose because the uh, animal is usually supremely docile a wise man advises the king that the beast may be a werewolf who in human form has been wronged by these people. And when the woman is questioned under torture, she confesses all, including the location of the stolen clothing, into which uh, Bisclavré uh, finally changes, returning him to human form. The knight and Bisclavré's uh, former wife are exiled, but their familial line is forever cursed with uh, all female offspring thereafter born without noses. Another medieval French story, more in keeping with the usually more uh, savage or even devilish nature of the werewolf, is that of the 13th century knight Rimbaud de Pinitome of the Auvergne region. Through a dispute with another knight, Ponce de Capitol, he is uh, deprived of his lands and title, According to the uh, Benedictine author uh, Pierre uh, Berchure, who relates the story in his uh, 1343 encyclopedic work, Redictoria Morale,
0: Rainbow felt such despair and such heaviness of heart that he fled in the dark of night, through the wastelands and thickets and through the high mountains, to the point that he forgot that he was a rational human being. And he was transformed into a ravenous, greedy wolf And he strangled small children And he did the same to grown men when he could overcome them
1: The attacks were eventually ended by a carpenter Who hacked off one of the beast's hind legs Thereby returning Rambo to a human form Albeit less one leg Uh, A remedy for lycanthropy I don't find anywhere else, actually, by the way In the same collection are a couple of other French werewolf stories. One simply mentions a common method of transformation, stripping off one's clothing and lying naked on the earth. And the third story, also set in Auvergne, tells of a knight attacked by a wolf and two cubs while riding through the forest. He manages to kill the wolf, but the cubs escape. Down the way, he encounters an old woman carrying some food in her apron. He warns her of the uh, juvenile wolves lurking ahead, Upon hearing this, she burst into tears, declaring that the wolf was her husband, a werewolf, like her two children, the cubs, to whom she was bringing food. While these medieval werewolf tales are relatively few and far between, the 16th century saw a tremendous upswing in alleged werewolf activity in France, more so than in any other place in time. Between 1520 and 1630, more than 30,000 individuals were accused of being werewolves. This is the period I'll be talking about for the balance of the show, so I'll be stopping short of the 17th century uh, Beast of Gévaudan, uh, partly because of the time frame and partly because it's already been covered in a number of excellent shows such as Monster Talk. The period we'll be discussing is one in which the werewolf is strongly associated with witchcraft, and the uh, Gévaudan creature uh, was not, and is more often regarded as some sort of cryptid or out-of-place animal species than as a uh, folkloric werewolf. The first regions of France to be affected were those near the border with Switzerland, where in the 1400s a new attitude towards witchcraft had developed. Accounts uh, once dismissed as the uh, superstitious delusions of simple country folk were suddenly coming under urgent scrutiny as the work of Satan thanks to the uh, ecclesiastic debates of the Council of Basel uh, throughout the 1430s. Out of these discussions came the uh, Formicarius by Johannes Nieder, one of the earliest witch-hunting guides. Around the same time, witchcraft trials in the uh, French-speaking areas around Lucerne, Switzerland, had become endemic. As the witch-hunting mania spilled over the border into France, witches were increasingly portrayed as transforming themselves into werewolves. A judge who tried approximately 600 witchcraft trials in this area in the uh, Jura Mountains was Henri Boguet. He uh, documented his involvement in these affairs in his widely circulated 1602 book, which in English would be titled The Abominable Discourse of Sorcerers, from which I'll be uh, discussing a number of cases. One of uh, Boguet's cases uh, begins with a wolf attack upon a traveler during which the wolf is injured and tracked to the home. Of Michel Verdun, whose arm, it's discovered, is bleeding from an injury identical to that inflicted on the wolf. Verdun is uh, arrested, confesses under torture to being a werewolf, and in the process, implicates fellow werewolves uh, Pierre Bourgot and Philibert Montault. We have no details about Montault, but during the trial, rather than under torture, as far as I can tell, Bourgot offered a lurid confession. It begins with him tending sheep during the thunderstorm which scatters the flock. Out of the storm ride three black horsemen. One suggests that not only can his sheep be returned, but that Burgot can be freed from all his troubles and provided with gold should he serve the rider's master. Burgot agrees to meet this mysterious master in four days. The master's name is Moise and his master is Satan. To obtain the gifts promised, Bourgo must now renounce his Christian faith. The shepherd agrees, and to seal this contract kisses the stranger's hand, which, Bouguet tells us, is...
0: Black and ice-cold as that of a corpse.
1: After two years of enjoying the rewards of his satanic devotion, Bourgo strays and attends Mass. But, Vadan appears to return him to the fold, he brings him to a witch's Sabbath.
0: In a wood near Chastel Charmont, we met with others who I did not recognize. We danced, and each had in his or her hand a green taper with a blue flame.
1: There he experiences his first werewolf transformation with Verdon's help.
0: After I had stripped myself, he smeared me with a salve, and I believed myself to be transformed into a wolf. I was at first somewhat horrified, at my four wolves feet and with the fur which I was covered all at once, but I found that I could now travel with the speed of the wind.
1: After two hours in this form, he is returned to human shape with another application of the south provided by their masters. Bourgo follows this story with reports of various attacks on humans. The first, upon a boy of about seven, is aborted as the child screams too loudly and a fearful Bogot is forced to transform back to avoid detection. But he and Verdun are successful with their next attack, according to uh, Montague Summers. They seized
0: a little girl of four years old and ate the palpitating flesh, all
1: save one arm. Verdun comments here on the deliciousness of the flesh. They also kill a woman out gathering peas, as well as her would-be male rescuer. Uh, Summers uh, continues.
0: Several other persons were murdered by them in this way, for they love to lap up the warm, flowing blood. On one occasion, Pierre, with his keen white teeth, tore out the throat of a girl aged about nine who they assaulted in a vineyard.
1: Burgos' testimony also includes remarks about coupling with uh, she-wolves, something he found superior to congress with human females. Burgos, Vadan, and Monto are executed in December of 1521. Another case mentioned by Bouguet, and also from this uh, same uh, Jura region, involves a hermit by the name of Gilles Jamier. In November of 1572, a hunting party witnesses an attack on a child by some sort of beast, which some took for a wolf and others said resembled the well-known hermit. When another child disappears, Chamier uh, is questioned on the rack, eventually confessing to being a werewolf and killing at least four children. Of the first child killed, a girl, uh, Summers writes...
0: Not content with eating heartily of the flesh of her thighs and arms, he carried some of the flesh to Apolline, his wife.
1: A second girl he attacked was only wounded as three rescuers showed up in the nick of time. And he next sought out boys, the first being a ten-year-old, attacked in a vineyard. According to Summers, He ate
0: the flesh of the thighs, legs, and belly of the aforesaid boy, and tore a leg off from the body.
1: A second boy, like the first, he killed by strangling but he was prevented from eating the flesh as people had drawn close. Uh, This last one he admitted to killing while in human rather than wolf form. Today we assume that all these attacks were carried out in human form, of course, and perhaps given the detail about Jamier bringing meat to his wife, we might presume hunger may have been a factor too, with uh, children being easier prey than uh, larger animals. A 16th century letter recounting the case, one written by the priest Daniel Doge to a fellow scholar, begins with uh, such an assumption.
0: Unable to find food to support his family, he fell upon such evil and impious courses that whilst wandering about one evening through the woods, he made a pact with a phantom or spectral man whom he encountered in some remote and haunted spot.
1: This phantom offers Jamier an ointment allowing him to transform into a wild animal of his choice. A wolf,
0: a lion, a wild cat, only advising that since the wolf was the least remarkable of savage beasts, that this shape would be the more comfortable.
1: Whatever issues or problems we believe lay behind Jamier's case, after full confession and penance, he left all these behind on January 18, 1573, when burned at the stake. Yet another case in this same area, mentioned by Vogue, is that of the uh, Jean Dions a uh, whole family of alleged werewolves. It begins with a female werewolf, uh, Peronette uh, Jondion attacking a uh, brother and sister, ages uh, 15 and 16, respectively, who were out picking fruit. Uh, According to Bouguet, the uh, creature was described in testimony as... A wolf without a tail. It also seems to have had hands like a human. After first attacking the girl, it turns on the boy.
0: And took from him a knife which he was carrying, and wounded him in the neck with it. The wolf which had wounded him had its two forefeet like a man's hands covered on the top with hair.
1: The creature was apprehended by some peasants at the scene and despite its wolf-like features is recognized as uh, Perinette Jandillon and killed on the spot. The mortally injured boy dies a few days later. After Perinette's death, her sister Antoinette was taken into custody where she said to have confirmed that she was also a werewolf and a witch and had attended Sabbaths where hailstorms were raised and had slept with the devil in the form of a goat. Perenet's brother, Pierre, and his son, Georges, were also imprisoned and also confessed to being werewolves and witches. Bouguet mentions observing the Jean Dion males in prison.
0: I have seen those I have named go on all fours in a room, just as they did when they were in the fields. But they said that it was impossible for them to turn themselves into wolves, since they had no more ointment. I have further noted that they were all scratched on the face and hands and legs, and that Pierre Jandillon was so much disfigured in this way that he bore hardly any resemblance to a man and struck with horror those who looked at him.
1: After their confessions, the three surviving Gendions were sentenced to death and burned at the stake. From a bit further north, in the town of Chalon in the Champagne region, comes another story involving an alleged werewolf preying on children. Uh, Rumors of werewolf activity there arose after a series of mysterious disappearances in 1598. After armed envoys sent into the nearby woods returned empty-handed, attention focused on an eccentric tailor, sparked by reports of cries from within his shop, and sightings of the man himself racing through the woods on all fours. When authorities demanded entrance to this shop, they were horrified to find it littered with half-eaten and decaying human flesh and shallow graves dug in the courtyard. We'll let Montague Summers continue this story.
0: This wretch was wont to decoy children of both sexes into his shop, and having abused them, he would slice their throats and then powder and dress their bodies, jointing them as a butcher cuts up meat. Barrels of bleaching bones were found concealed in his cellars, as well as other foul and hideous
1: things. While the tailor admitted to murder, he denied being a werewolf and remained unrepentant and abusive to the authorities until his execution at the stake. I've not mentioned the individual's name because it's unknown, as Summers explains.
0: So scabrous were the details of the case that the court ordered the documents to be burned.
1: I'm going to include one last story from 1603. One coming at the tail end of this uh, period of uh, peak werewolf activity in France and one that demonstrates the beginning of a changing attitude toward uh, werewolf stories as we uh, enter the Enlightenment era. It also occurs in western France in the extreme southwest in the county of uh, Lund in the town of Bordeaux where children had begun to mysteriously vanish from nearby villages and fields and roads Summers writes, In one instance,
0: even a babe was stolen from its cradle in a cottage, whilst the mother had left it for a short time safe asleep. As she thought, people talked of wolves, others shook their heads and whispered of something worse than wolves.
1: Then there comes a report to a local magistrate from a 13-year-old girl by the name of Marguerite Poyer.
0: The girl stated that one midday, Whilst she was watching cattle, a wild beast with reddish fur, not unlike a huge dog, rushed from the thicket and tore her gown with its sharp teeth.
1: She was able to drive it off with an iron-pointed staff she carried, but the incident was made stranger still when a boy of approximately her age, Jean Grenier, claimed that it was he who had attacked her and that for her use of the pointed staff, he would have killed and eaten her, as he had previously done with three or four other children. The deposition of another young woman, Jean Javillot, included Garnier's comments to her about a magic wolf's pelt given to him by a man named Pierre Laboura, which enabled him to roam the forest in the form of a wolf. This was enough to see Gagnier summoned before the higher court on May 29, 1603. In his testimony, he described being brought by a friend deep into the forest
0: into the presence of the Lord of the Forest. This Lord was a tall, dark man, dressed all in black, riding a black charger. He saluted the two lads, and dismounting, he kissed Sean. His mouth was colder than ice.
1: On a second meeting, he submitted himself into the service of this lord, who had given him wine, marked him with a cut carved by a sort of stiletto in his thigh, and presented him the magic pelt, which he said was to be used in combination with the special unguent uh, provided by the lord at each transformation. He is also ordered...
0: Never to pare the nail of his left thumb, and it had grown thick and crooked like a claw. On more than one occasion, he had seen several men, of whom he recognized some four or five, with the lord of the forest adoring him.
1: His testimony then proceeded to uh, further tales of attacks upon children of the type we've been hearing, some of which seemed at first to be corroborated by witnesses coming forward as the uh, victims of the incidents. But when the court attempted to locate uh, Pierre Delatier, a fellow werewolf Garnier had named, he could not be found. Garnier's father, whom the boy had also accused of witchcraft, was interrogated and found to be ignorant of all such affairs and was released. The case was passed on to the Parliament of Bordeaux, and presumably out of skepticism, uh, leniency was shown in the sentencing. The boy was condemned to be confined in the Franciscan friary of St. Michael the Archangel, with the caveat that any attempt to escape would see him on the gallows. Pierre Delancre, the judge in this case, uh, who's recorded the details I've shared, visited the defendant in the monastery seven years later, describing him in terms that would leave some doubt as to whether the boy might not still be suffering under some sort of curse. Summers relates that Delancre
0: found that he was a lean and gaunt lad with small, deep-set black eyes that glared fiercely. He had long, sharp teeth, some of which were white like fangs, others black and broken. Whilst his hands were almost like claws with horrid, crooked nails, he loved to hear and talk of wolves. He often fell upon all fours, moving with extraordinary agility and seemingly with greater ease than when he walked upright as a man the fathers remarked that at first at least he rejected simple plain food for faust awful
1: Garnier also confessed to delancre that since his confinement in the friar he had been visited twice by the lord of the forest entering his cell in spectral form adding that he had driven off his old master with the sign of the cross. Grenier remained under the watchful eye of the friars until his natural death in 1611. So I've concluded our discussion of the 16th century wave of French werewolf cases, sneaking in this last one that's actually from the first years of the 17th. And we're also at the end of our show, which may come as relief after hearing so many ...dreadful cases of murdered children. I hope it's all been a little instructive, at least... ...learning of this forgotten association between werewolves and infanticides. Though we don't think about werewolves in this way anymore... ...our feelings about this particularly atrocious crime are likely the same... ...namely, a human simply can't do such things. But werewolves are another story, an ongoing story, according to this next account... I'll conclude with this last report, this one from the 20th century and from Garnier's hometown of Bordeaux, no less. One evening in 1989, a 28-year-old man whose identity was not made public invites a stranger into his home to share a meal. The guest is suddenly attacked, murdered by the host with his bare hands. The arresting officers are unable to make sense of this uh, sudden, unprovoked assault. And it's only when the suspect is brought to the prison and seen by the uh, prison psychiatrist that the truth came out. Here are the words of Dr. Michelle Benzenek, a specialist in forensic psychology and the historic relationship between psychiatry and prisons. When I interviewed him, I was surprised because it was the first time I had in front of me someone who described the symptoms of transformation into a werewolf. After months of further observation and testing, Benzenek issued his official diagnosis of pathological lycanthropy. Interviews with the murderer's girlfriend also revealed a history of the patient howling like a wolf and biting her. And interviews with the prisoner himself would leave even less doubt as to his condition.
0: He said to me, I feel that my teeth are
1: growing longer and I have the feeling that my skin is not my own, but that of a wolf or a werewolf. It's almost as if that spectral lord of the forest who was able to slip into Grenier's cell in 1610 is still able to uh, slip into the lives of uh, particularly vulnerable souls. I become bad, and I want to bite. I want to drink blood. I want to eat flesh. As if the old story is still... Repeating, eat flesh. Eat flesh. Eat flesh. Eat flesh. Eat flesh. Eat flesh. Drink blood. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show, and that you uh, might have uh, the opportunity to uh, share episodes with friends you think might enjoy what we do. Uh, We particularly appreciate reviews, as uh, these are the best way to raise the show's visibility on. Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you've left a review, by all means, do let me know and I'll give you a little shout out. Uh, our website, boneandsickle.com provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter and Instagram, along with uh, show notes with uh, plenty of images and video links to uh, material used in the program. Music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the site. The Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of this uh, podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the show Soundscapes, what you hear in the background, uh, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top subscribers, as well as that signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson I always mention. Uh, donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Yes, really, 100 hours. We do have some new supporters I'm very grateful for and would like to thank uh, Venable, Mike Farrell, Deborah Bush, Louis Carmig, and Anne Cartland. The show is written and produced by me, Al Ridenauer. Wilkinson is played by Will Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.